Hello and welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Lobb, and I'm joined today by two very special guests. I'm joined by Katie Good. She is the Creative Director of Triangular Pixels, and I'm also joined by John Campbell. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and I do uh, technical direction at Triangular Pixels. There we go. So John and Katie. And uh, Triangular Pixels is a studio that makes VR things. Is that a good description? <laughs> VR things. <laughs> Most of the time games, we hope. <laughs> I, now, I met you guys a few months ago at a thing, um, at a local tech meetup, because we're both based up in Cork, down in Cornwall. And I played on your game Unseen Diplomacy, which I thought was really cool. Um, I've talked about it already on the podcast. I really liked it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and I, so let's start by just asking you guys how you got started sort of in the VR development, like how it came about. I mean, uh, I guess we've both been in the game industry for quite a long time. And uh, we actually uh, both met at Sony. Uh, just sitting next to each other on uh, a augmented reality project called Wonderbook. Um, uh, which was uh, back in the heady days of PS3, um, and Wonderbook was an augmented reality game with this kind of this big blue book with QR codes on it that you kind of showed up to the basically the PS3's webcam, um, which was an interesting challenge. Uh, and then after that, we kind of rolled on to the, the bleeding edge of what was then called Morpheus, which became PlayStation VR, and the incredibly crude early dev kits. So, like, I guess from moving, like, using PlayStation Move controllers, we carried on using PlayStation Move controllers in virtual reality, uh, and then started at home looking at other kits as well. And uh, by which point I had left Sony, and we managed to get hands on some early, really early Gear VR dev kit. And everything just really escalated from there, really. <laughs> just haven't been out of virtual reality since. <laughs> Do you think that it's all happened quickly, VR? Or is it actually really have been a slow process for you guys? Like, how does it feel? Um, well, for me personally, it feels like the whole time of everyone sort of us testing out VR and everyone else getting to play it has been a long time. But in terms of dev time, it's felt really tiny. <laughs> like the time it's allowed us to start making stuff has been what well, has felt really small. But in the grand scheme of things, it's actually like, yeah, for a year or two dev, um, that's about right. So yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be enough time for us to carry, like, <laughs> make a game before launch of various things. But uh, we're not stopping <laughs> out at least. I mean, what's your, so out of all the, things that exist now like which one do you like working with the best well in terms of hardware in terms of the hardware yeah there's it depends what mood i'm in um mm. then probably up you as well john i mean in, in many ways i still really like the gear vr um partly because it's what we properly started developing on um but because it's it's, it's like really portable you can literally bring it in your bag as we did several times and then be at the pub with a friend or sometimes we'd go to an event and it's just like, here it is and it works and there's no wires and there's no setup and it's great. Um, but then like, I also love having the freedom of, of the, the kind of what I think of as the big boy kit, things like the Rift and the Vive where, mm. yeah, you've got a lot more setup, but you've suddenly got a lot more freedom and you've got 
the the power of a PC behind you. Um, we spent so much time when we were doing uh, the Gear VR version of Smash It Plunder, just optimizing and constantly stripping assets down to the bare minimum, going over code again and again to make sure it, it ran basically a slightly souped up mobile phone. In terms of debugging, it was awkward because you do a package and then you put it on the device and hope for the best, really, because mm-hmm. you know there wasn't any nice way to even connect it via USB to debug it because it's inside. This USB was used up by the headset, so right. you just couldn't debug it properly. Uh, so it's just like fire and forget and go cross your fingers. <laughs> um, but in terms of like playing stuff, um, I love sitting down and just on the sofa playing games together. Um, PSVR, uh, and then if I'm feeling in athletic mood, uh, then or adventurous mood, then I'll use my Vive, basically. And I've got a slightly pimped up Vive now because I've put this lovely gel protection stuff on it. It makes it look like a little red ladybird, which is quite cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you like completely immune to the motion sickness and stuff by now, or nope? Oh no! no. I, I am still a complete VR bus, and I still get motion sickness <laughs> incredibly easily. Um, which I'm kind of pretending to myself is a benefit because if we can make something that doesn't make me ill, then it's probably okay for most people. Mm. Uh, which is mm. why we often end up having about lots of different um, ways to get around VR sickness when we're making things. Uh, which I think is overall a benefit. I think from uh, my point of view, I actually feel like I've got worse. So when right. I got original DK1, like Oculus DK1, uh, and like early Morpheus stuff, like I was fine. Like I didn't feel particularly bad. And then as all the kits have got better, and now like I'm walking around in the Vive entirely one to one, and I go back to an experience which isn't really thinking about all the motion sickness problems, then I'm suddenly feeling horrible. Uh, whereas those experiences used to be fine. Like, I used to be able to go on a VR roller coaster and feel fine. And now if I do it, I'm like, nope, nope, noping out of this. Mm. I just feel it in my in like my forehead between my eyes and the eye strain things. It's weird. That's interesting. I actually have psychological sickness associations. Like you know, some people they smell like they smell petrol mm-hmm. or things like that, and it makes them feel travel sick. I have that when I think about like. Oculus, for example, because I've been on so many, I've done so many things, like a lot of them were like made by students and stuff or people who didn't really know what they were doing. (laughs) And that just were almost like if you set out to make someone sick, (laughs) I think one of them is called, and it's a professional thing, I think it's called Windlands. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, yeah, we know. It's where you, is that right? And you jump around a big environment? Is that the same thing? Yeah. Right, and that one just makes me, that makes me feel so sick. Um, And then I've done loads of other things that are like, anything third person makes me sick. In fact, anything where they move the camera for you, Mm -hmm. I just want to vomit. And that's like 30, that's like, well, 70% of everything, I think. I mean, there's there's definitely more psychological stuff as well, because I've got a thing against teleporting. I don't, I don't like teleporting. I think it's because you don't do it in real life. 
Like mm-hmm. it's suddenly re- really disorientating feeling. It would be. It would be really disorienting. Yeah, yeah, but like it's good for motion sickness, but not good for my mental well-being. <laughs> for my personal mental <laughs> can, well-being. Anyway. A, I guess there's other kinds of disorientation, right? Other than motion sickness. Yeah, that's like, right. Yeah. Yeah, for me, teleporting again, it's not a motion sickness problem, but it makes it, it can make like a, a world seem really disjoint. Uh, mm. Like it's not. I'm in here and then I'm over there and I because I don't feel like I've traveled between the space to me it's like they're not connected um living in London I often call the tube this magical teleportation device (laughs) you would walk down some steps and just half on a tube and then walk up some steps and you would be in a completely different place in London and you have no idea how those two places were related yeah. And then it would take somebody with a little bit more local knowledge to say, did, did you know that there's, there's a tube station literally just around the corner? And that, that's kind of what teleporting does to me. I'm not joining up the big picture. Mm. Then that's mm. include all the gameplay problems, of course, where I guess if you're doing things like teleporting, it means that you're missing out on potential clues if you just happen to be teleporting between them. Like, mm. like tele- uh, as in like you're skipping parts that you, you should have like picked up, or um, if you're doing something that I mean like a platformer style game and you can teleport, then you have to think of reasons why they can't just teleport to the end flag or whatever it is. So mm. um, yeah, like it's not. There's I think what we really come from this is the fact that there isn't a solution for everything. Like, and not there isn't just one solution to yeah. locomotion methods yeah there's no like one one right answer that works mm-hmm. I mean the, the things that I really like are things like unseen diplomacy or well just anything where basically it's like a, an escape the room type situation where like the space you're in is the space that it uses mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't do any like like you guys do some clever things that are sort of sort of teleports but you don't notice it right <laughs> yeah we, like, we we warp space basically it's uh in a kind of a non-euclidean way so that as you move around it warps back on itself and you kind of walk in circles physically but hopefully because you're in a different place virtually you don't notice and some people no non- i definitely didn't notice like it definitely <laughs> got me like the trick totally worked and i was like wait a minute how am i how am i walk this far in a, in a small boardroom the important thing is to make sure you don't mess with the player at all so there's different kinds of uh ways of doing redirection which is things like if you turn your head you actually turn in-game head more um so you spin around oh, faster okay. and things like that but we don't do any of that. Um, we walk space behind the closed doors, as it were. Um, so you can't, you just can't see it, as it were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think VR, like, definitely it works best when you have, like, a, some sort of big room to do it in, like a holodeck or something, right? Yeah, it helps. There's not really a substitute <laughs> for that. Oh, yes, the bigger the better uh, <laughs> for us, you know. Um, in terms of level design, it was a right ass to be able to do <laughs> like all these bits overlapping. If I had a big factory to do it in or something, then I won't have to overlap all these different areas. But um, yeah, I mean, um, the, the game requires quite a lot of space. Um, I think it's four meters by three meters. Right. Um, 
but yeah we have some ideas of how we could make that a lot smaller um and like change things up dynamically so that it just fits to where you're like what you've you've done with your space and we come up with like different ways of giving like context to why you're sort of walking around in circles i guess uh, mm. so like an example would be um the lift in unseen diplomacy is a nice way to mm-hmm. be able to turn people around on the spot because they go in one yeah. way and they come out <laughs> the same way the same double. yeah yeah so it's just trying to use level design basically we're using level design rather than a gameplay mechanic to deal with locomotion mm. Mm. i guess a, like a, a lift or an elevator for american listeners is sort of a a teleportation metaphor that everyone sort of yeah already understands because everyone's used one real world a bit like the tube a bit like the tube is mm-hmm. right or get, can, I mean can you do things with like getting on a bus would that work like you get on a bus the bus drives down the street and then you get off yeah like would that work or would it that would. be, be, would that really be a motion sickness thing no no I think it'd be a really <laughs> tiny bus <laughs> right. It's like you probably do what you know. There's little tiny uh, electric vehicles that you can get, like one person fits in. Um, right. Okay. I know that driving can make some people feel ill. I mean, you don't like driving, do you? Uh, I'm not keen when I've tried driving games in VR, but like a bus where you've got you know all the the bus furniture as it were around you and that's mm. moving. Um, I th- yeah, that that would be a really nice nice way of doing it. Or like a you or you could do like a TARDIS. Yeah, yeah we, we, we did actually uh, play. Uh, somebody had done a, a TARDIS kind of experience. Um, I think it was on a DK2, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was still that. artificial locomotion, but uh, like going from like a street into the TARDIS and then coming back out again uh, yeah. felt felt believable. It was nice. Um, but yeah. that's because the Doctor Who guys have spent years making it a believable thing. It's like, it totally works <laughs> fine. Yeah. You've seen it on TV, it's real, right? <laughs> yeah. They've got the context to that. Um, so I guess, yeah, just looking at the oldie games and TV shows and films and seeing what really weird context people have done to be able to move I mean, people from A to B. Yeah, there's a, but there's now that I think about it, there's so many, right? In <laughs> Harry Potter, you have like port keys mm-hmm. and you have um, flu powder. Um, and uh, you've got the magical door in Howl's Moving Castle. Right, yeah, that's good. Yeah, you've got what Narnia. You've got the wardrobe. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Uh, now I need to do something about wardrobe <laughs> in, in VR. Yeah. I think what's interesting is um, like traditional flat games have gone for so long, just building up. Uh, certain conventions and mechanics and assumptions. <laughs> Flat games, is that what we're yeah, calling non-VR games. stuff now? I mean, 2D doesn't work because you've got 2D, 3D, <laughs> and now it's like, flat. It sounds really horrible, doesn't it? <laughs> I love it. I, mean, I like flat games because rather than saying, like, legacy games or something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> old-fashioned phonies old, Old-fashioned games. games. <laughs> Norm, normie games. But, but flat games have, have got by just, uh, like being able to do just so many things without even thinking of it and now when we've come to VR uh, it's almost like we have to build in the restrictions into the design of the game much more like we can't just work around it with tech like things like the teleporting wardrobe or the bus has to has to come into the game design and be considered as a whole rather than just oh what we do oh 
it's a first-person game and you run around a level. Yeah. The level can be anything. When you're coming up with the concept, that's how early you have to start thinking about this sort of stuff because it has a massive effect on gameplay um, and can basically be like 90% of your game is how do I deal with locomotion. Um, and yeah, like... I guess, though, from a designer perspective, it's a really fun challenge. Like, it's a really cool limitation. And um, I've always felt like I'm doing my best when I'm designing within really tight limitations because I, yeah. I, I love pushing those boundaries. And VR, in, it's a really big thing as a whole, but it, you add all these sort of biological aspects to it, then suddenly there's loads more limitation to it. Um, so the locomotion is just one of it. Um, another bit is what happens if someone's playing and they're in a wheelchair. Um, like what happens if like you've got a, a deaf person that's playing, like you can't just rely on some audio cues happening behind you for them to turn their head and things. Um, and then yeah, I mean, sorry, just to interrupt there. Yeah, I don't know how much of it was like like games press looking for stories, but I've I've read several like sort of. Uh, maybe slightly over the top stories or maybe they were accurate about like games that are VR games that are impossible for women to play because you have to be at least like five, six <laughs> tall, right? Like you have yeah. to be at least a certain height, height for, to, to even be able to play it or whatever. We've got the same sort of limitations in, in scene diplomacy and uh, or at least like in in the, the build that we've got out. Um, we've had to, we had to create game mode like a game switch to basically turn off crawling in case people couldn't crawl for some reason and there's plenty mm. of people in the world that can't or yeah. um it puts items on tables rather than on the floor so you don't have to reach all the way down uh but then we had a room with um uh, uh drawers and the drawers would go really quite high and we found that a lot of kids couldn't actually reach the top set of drawers so we had to turn off where the key card spawned into the top drawers just so they had a chance. Uh, and some kids were still enjoyed sort of jumping up. It's like giving yeah. that option to do that if they want to, but it's entirely optional to do that. It's not a requirement. Um, and in the same way, I guess, that um, shorter kids and shorter people actually have an advantage in the lasers because they don't have to crawl around quite so low. They can just sort of you know, almost walk <laughs> under some of them. Um, so it's not just a you know, disadvantages, there's advantages too, um, to being just b built differently from how we model it around on an eye. Mm. And it's, it's something that we're always a little bit worried about, that we'll accidentally design something that can't be played by a person because of some mm. constraint that we've not... Yeah. I mean, like, the thing is though, I guess all games actually have this, but we just accept certain things. Like, we accept that if you, like can't uh you know coordinate both your thumbs you can't play xbox games or you have to find some yeah. other way of playing well, them. they do have the button remapping on yeah. playstation 4 now so like the, there's like you like it doesn't matter whatever the game does you can force button remaps within the accessibility settings of the playstation 4 and right. it means that you can have you make your own custom controllers as well and have custom controllers like i've seen the sort of controllers where people are just controlling the, like a whole game just through their head or their and their feet or something and all that sort of yeah do you know there's a charity that do is it they called special effects yeah, special or is that something effects else? one yeah and they do like 
custom rigs for people with like disabilities yeah. who can play games. And I had a go on one of their rigs, which was um, playing like a rally racing game just with my eyes. It's really um, cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a really amazing stuff, but, but yeah, it's quite yeah. It's quite tricky to play. I guess the difference with VR and like flat controller game is the fact that when it gets to the controller, as long as you can deal with input to the controller, as long as the PlayStation 4 or whatever gets X button in some way or form, then mm -hmm. the player can do whatever they want. They can jump, yeah. they can fly, they can shoot, Ooh. whatever. However, in a VR game, your interaction is your in your movement. It's entirely one-to-one. Yeah. -one. And if you can't perform that movement in real life, you can't perform it in VR. And yeah. that that's where your the problem really lies. And of course, this isn't including all the fact that VR really does only really work that if you if you can actually see in the first place, of course. Um, but like, yeah, but couldn't you couldn't you like fake the walking around bit on a controller, right? Yeah. Like, would that be po would that even work? Like, for example, for unseen diplomacy, would it be possible to make a version of it that is a flat game, or does it just do things that couldn't be? Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, because is it built in Unity? Yeah, it's built in Unity. Yeah, so and then, so, and then do you have, like, in Unity, is there, like, some colliders representing the, <laughs> the controllers, or how does it, pretty, how does pretty it work? Much. I mean, we do, we do kind of have a kind of a 2D version of all of our games that is largely just used for development. Right. Uh, because when I'm feeling lazy or if I'm on a train on a laptop, I still want to be able to test things. Yeah. Not everything needs me to go and physically put on a piece of kit and wave my hands around and test. Them. <laughs> so we yeah. we do kind of take time out to make sure we got two D versions, but they're basically debug modes. They're like super crude that we never expect to ship and yeah. full of all sorts of weird bugs. So, like, yes, you could technically play a version of Unseen Diplomacy either with a pad or. Um, or as a completely <laughs> flat game, but Unseen Diplomacy in particular was always designed to be uh, like what what game would you make if you had no constraints? If you had the maximum tracking area and you assumed like you ignored all the annoying commercial bits, like everybody like mm. maximizing the amount of people that could play it. Yeah, and so. From a gameplay perspective. That would be a very different game. Yeah, I mean, I like, from the gameplay perspective, the fun of the game is movement and physicality. Yeah. And you take that away, then it's like, oh, so I'm just holding forward to go through doors and then occasionally you have to press a crouch button. Like, yeah. done that in games for years, and that's not fun anymore. Just moving around isn't fun in a 2D flat game. Moving around in VR, having to literally morph your body um, to get around lasers, and like us, like having to figure out different ways you could possibly control that. I guess like um, Iron Bread or Surgeon Sim, where it's like you're trying to literally map muscles to buttons instead. Just it just turns it into an entirely different game. It's like one of those sort of clumsy physics games, rather. Than, yeah. Like it's it's an assault course, and in some ways, I wonder if. You know, uh, Unseen Diplomacy is actually really a game because it all comes from the physicality. Like, if you're good at doing assault courses, you're good at playing Unseen Diplomacy. Um, and, uh, like, I wonder if in, like, 10 years, 20 years, is it going to be 
as fun still because suddenly all the game's going to be like this is just how you move in a VR game why is this so special <laughs> basically mm. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you that. How much do you think is, like, novelty that will wear off and how much is, like, things that are that go beyond novelty? Because I guess, I mean, I guess all of the history of video games is a history of novelty, basically. Yeah. But some some things are still fun. Yeah, which like, is why it's always a little bit, not frustrating, but possibly misleading when people say something like the Wii was just a, a novelty waggle console. And it was... It, it's perceived as a novelty now, but at the time it was it was groundbreaking. Nobody had really used that kind of controller and that kind of control inputs to do what games like Wii Sports were doing. Uh, mm. And yeah, that is that suffered a similar thing where if you go back to it now, it's it's not as novel. It's not necessarily as quite as interesting. I think most of it would still stand up, and I think in a similar way, I hope something like Unseen Diplomacy would still stand up, but you would possibly also be having a little bit in the back of your brain going, well, this was the early days of VR and <laughs> they hadn't figured out something. They hadn't yet. got their hands in there and they can't yeah. see their bodies when they look well, down. How quaint, this is a VR game without eye tracking or without foot tracking or something weird. Yeah, or without... Uh like a giant baby bouncer. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't believe everyone didn't used to be in big baby bouncers all the time. Yeah, I, Do you remember those days? Those are weird, those days. <laughs> <laughs> seen a friend that's got one of those, actually. Like, is this a thing? Is this a thing? Yeah, like, there is actually the big baby bouncer thing, uh, which is basically the, the treadmills, some of the treadmills. You are right. sitting in a baby bouncer. <laughs> You're paying, like, quite a few hundred pounds for the privilege. Um, unfortunately, of course, there's not many games that support them. Um, right. So, yeah, she's, she's stuck with a big ba- adult baby bouncer <laughs> in there. <laughs> Someone, the first weekend that um, the, the uh, these ones, the Vive mm-hmm. got released, someone was like, oh, I've developed this new walking system by like putting one of the controllers down my trousers or my pocket or something <laughs> yeah did that work out or not we saw that years ago actually there's a dk1 demo that we saw uh, in a london meetup where like this was before anyone really like uh had any proper hand controllers and someone used a razor um uh, hydra it? hydra uh which was the device that was sold before really vr was a thing mm-hmm. and it's like oh so you can still use it. Yeah, so they literally did just stick it down their trousers uh, or like <laughs> attach it to their head, uh, and they saw like, oh look, you can do positional tracking with this, and they did things like walking on the spot, and you could see you walking in the game, and that was I remembered playing some of the, those demos and thinking, wow, this is the future. Why has no one done this before? And now it's like, now literally what a year or so later, then we got to make like the. Um, we got to play the vibe and I'm going, yeah, okay, someone's done it now. And it's actually properly supported. You don't have to hack it in yourself. Um, yeah. And it's always changing. I mean, um, like, I don't know if you've seen the, the interview recently with Valve, but they were showing off the like, new hand controllers they've got and sort of really wrap around inside your hands. And um, it's supposed to be some new lighthouses and they're making it wireless. And... Like there's, there's always new space. stuff. <laughs> Having said that, I'm a lot happier now that we've kind of standardised on 
kind of two classes of VR. Mm. Like there's right. there's mobile VR with, with basically Gear VR and cardboard where you've got and Daydream. And Daydream. And with like rotational tracking and kind of some sort of simple input and then you've got like uh, what I probably shouldn't call proper VR but like positionally tracked VR with positionally tracked headset and individual hand controllers in whatever shape that might be for Rift or Vive or PSVR and it's nice that there's, there's kind of these two standards now that we can aim at as developers and if we can- so but wh- what about like what about like the original Oculus idea which was like a headset and a and a game controller is that not like a <laughs> I never agreed with that. Basically, yeah. I, <laughs> Personally, I, I was like, that's such a mistake because, okay, like, I guess they didn't have the touches ready or something because they were, I feel like they should have launched with touch, um, but then the headset would have been quite late or something. Um, just because it has made the first sort of, the very first wired VR games, like, you know, sort of position chat VR games that a lot of people got their hands on were just a gamepad. And like, there's just this whole other level of uh, immersion when you start putting your hands in there. And now it's like, so those people that have still only got a gamepad, they're gonna basically like, as developers, we're not interested in just designing for a gamepad. Like, we want it to at least be positionally tracked. Um, mm. And so, like, there's gonna be not as many games for those people, and yet they've got this amazingly expensive headset and like brand new tech and yet like developers aren't going to be too interested in developing it for like anymore it is a like there's valid games for that kind of subcategory yeah driving games for one driving games are like really obsessive driving people are going to have their own steering wheel and things but there are valid games for that but it's it's quite a thin slice i think and uh, it, it tends to overlap with a lot of the games where I play and I think this didn't necessarily need to be in VR. Uh, no, because the, the experience of having like a really big 4K monitor, like especially one of those ones that's like wrap around or having like a three screen PC gaming setup. Just making your own is, cave. <laughs> yeah, like that I think is is much nicer experience. Like if you want to just do something insane, yeah. like for when you're playing Overwatch or whatever, those sorts of things, I think, are much better than wearing the headset. And probably like, more practical in some ways as well. Uh, yeah, because you can pick up your cup of coffee yeah. and you can type on your keyboard and you can do all these things that you take for granted. I mean, I um, mean the other weird thing that we've seen is uh, from user testing is uh, if you give um, if you give kind of somebody who's quite into gaming, if you put them in a VR headset and then you give them a, a regular game controller. Uh, they they kind of go into this kind of almost hunched posture and their, their <laughs> neck and their head just freezes because they're so used to and I'm guilty of it as well. You've got a pad in your hands, you're sitting down, you're comfy and your head is just looking straight at a TV or whatever and the instant we gave people a pad, they stopped looking around mm. at which point the VR headset has stopped being this kind of immersive 360 display device and it's just become a really big TV right close to your eyes mm. at which point exactly what you're saying you might as well just be playing on a, a big wraparound 4k screen and that's still valid but 
it's a very different style of game. And the opposite side of the problem is when we stuck non-gamers in VR with a gamepad, they just freaked because, you know, normally they would freak just holding a pad anyway and being yeah. off the buttons, but at least they look down and, like, non-gamers just always look down to check where the buttons they are. Look at the- <laughs> and they can't do that in VR if it's an untracked pad. Yeah. But the interesting difference, I guess, like the sort of the sort of deviant of them all is the PlayStation 4 controller, because right. that can actually be tracked in VR, mm. and you can see that move and you see that move in Playroom, and that's a really nice job because you can look down then and look at the button layout. And you have um, a, a lovely flashing button. It's like, look like at this the, button here. <laughs> this is the button you should be pressing. It. Oh, so you can actually show a, th- a virtual representation of the controller yeah, in the exactly. right place. The same yeah. way that you could show a, a virtual Vive controller, a virtual touch controller. And that's because right. the, the light bar at the front of the PlayStation 4 yeah. controller, but it is only the PlayStation 4 controller that we know of that can be tracked like that. Mm. So maybe there's a, an opening there for PC tracked uh, PC controllers. Yeah, although well, which is going to be a thing because um, they did announce HC announced the sort of separate puck you could buy, basically a tracking puck which you can attach to anything you want. Uh, so I'll okay. try and get one attached onto my cat so that I can tell you what's in <laughs> VR. <laughs> what about a headset for cats? Uh, it might be a bit out. Of how sight. far away? <laughs> Skill. How far? How many years away is that? <laughs> Uh, there has been some people that have started trying to make things like that. Um, apparently, like, cruel people. People who want their pets taken away. <laughs> I, I think I need some other gloves to actually put a headset on our cat. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> So um, tell me a little bit about, because I see on your website that you've got Unseen Diplomacy for, sta- for sale on Steam, and it's £1.99 <laughs> UK price. Um, how, tell me a bit about like, what's the sort of actual marketplace like for like, selling a game, a VR game, and pricing and all those sorts of things. I think your number one driver is how much it's really been built for VR. And does it take full advantage? And that's just because the early adopters are ones that really want to show off their kit. Like, there were buy games that show off their kit and show off what VR is about. So we think we've done really well. Like, ourselves have done really well because uh, partly of that, but also because obviously, like, how different the game was. It's just, it's just, it's still really different. I just still don't think there's anything else like it on Steam. Um, so for us, it's been really good. And that game, we created in a really short amount of time as well. Um, so we made profit, which is really good. You know, it's good. So that means we can fund other stuff. Um, in terms of like big studios doing VR, uh, I would be like worried if they were trying to do something that, I don't know, was, I don't know, it was just really not built for VR, like a simple port. And it, it can work at times. Like I know that Resident Evil been picking up a lot of sales mm-hmm. from having their VR edition. But if they right. made a VR only edition, I think it would do well, but obviously not as well as if they included the flat version as well. Because ultimately there's a lot more uh, PS4s out there that don't have a VR kit than do have a VR kit at the moment. Mm. Um, so like it's still a limited market it is growing fast it, it there is a lot of units and for an indie dev it's very profitable and for like smaller budget games um but for like gta star game you know like 
hundreds of millions of pounds. Probably not quite it, yet. Yeah, it's it's tough sell to publishers any kind of medium to high budget game right mm. now. Right, so, but in a way, doesn't that make it good for indies because it's like you're serving a market that like other people wouldn't what uh that's not big enough for that's like big enough for you guys but not big enough for like a big company to move in because if you look at what happened with mobile games like it started out with lots of independent studios making stuff but then because it's there was like because there's so many handsets you know big companies moved in and realized that they could make loads of money by advertising loads and yeah, doing the, all the, the things that you sort of can't do as a small the, team yeah the comparison with early mobile is is definitely a valid one and we're still in that time when indies like ourselves can make a vr game and get some visibility and not be drowned out by either the size of the market or the big triple a stuff taking all the attention um, how long that's going to last for, I'm not sure. Uh, like next Christmas will be a really big test to see exactly how many like hardware units have shipped and how many of the bigger games and bigger studios are picking content up. But it's it's definitely the time to get into it. Like I, I've already seen people say the VR Gold Rush is finished. I'm not even sure there was a Gold Rush, but it's still a good time to be getting into it. And from a developer perspective, it's not just your, you know, obviously your profits and your bottom line, but also um, getting in there early and really early, you know, for us, um, we've made, managed to make a name for ourselves. And name, like people have heard of our studio, um, we've won awards, we've got to go around the world doing talks. And that never would have happened uh, if we were just doing a mobile phone game, right? A year or so ago, or whatever, because yeah. nobody would know who we were. Like, like you can shout as loud as you want, and nobody's gonna necessarily be listening for mobile. But for VR, there's definitely people listening, and especially if it does like your game or experience is doing something different. Um, mm-hmm. Like the, the VR press have been outstanding in just searching for that quirky, quirky thing. I mean, as in diplomacy, we weren't actually gonna release it. It was a game that we created for one week for Game City, like a one-off event in Nottingham. Oh, and yeah. um, basically some press caught wind of the, the video that I put up a few months after I put it up uh, and noticed what it was doing. And then Valve saw that and invited us to GDC. And there they convinced us to actually launch it because uh, of how popular it started becoming. And that's what you see now, basically. <laughs> That's crazy. So is it is it like a situation where people have been doing free stuff as well? Or is it everyone, is it, because you know what I mean? Like sometimes you get something where like someone does something for free and then it's massively successful. And then you they realize afterwards, oh, it's like we should have sold that. <laughs> there's definitely a few of those, like Rec Room's doing a really good job. At, there's a lot of people playing Rec Room uh, for the HTC Vive and uh, like it's entirely free. And have no idea how they're going to monetize it, and they've just got a massive investment though, um, right. because of how popular it is. I think it was only like a small little tiny studio slash one man band, uh, and now it's like they've got this massive investment. 
but again it's like so where are you going to go from there how are you going to monetize this mm. um, the thing about investment as well is you're sort of not allowed to just keep it yeah you sort of have to spend it and it's like if you get a million pound investment it's not the same as making a million pound profit no and then it's if you made a million pound profit you just go right that's good <laughs> but whereas if you get a million pound investment you sort of have to give it away to people and buy build more game yeah you have to aggressively grow um which is the reason why we've, we've stayed away from investors so far because it's not what we wanted to do it's like we want to make games we don't make a business the business is just the side effect of making the game so yeah <laughs> <laughs> good luck out there <laughs> i think there's also been particularly amongst the development developers i've talked to there's been a kind of a concerted effort to uh kind of avoid a a mobile style race to the bottom where every game costs 50p mm. um, which has had maybe mixed success because certainly at the release of the Vive and the Rift there were a lot of games that were uh, not necessarily too small but limited in content because of the nature of the game that were still kind of going for like 20 pounds. It's not just the nature, it's also the fact that the development time's been so short because well, yeah, but it, when we've got ads on hardware compared to when it's launched. But, but also because the nature, because so much of the development time is throwing away ideas and going like, yeah. well, this doesn't work. So you end up with less game for the same amount of production cost. And there was kind of a bit of a backlash amongst gamers about overpriced VR games. and. Right. We agonised for ages about the price for Unseen Diplomacy and whether we were, like, we've had loads of people say we pitched it too low and they they might have been right, but at the same time I'm much more comfortable with it being possibly too cheap and people feeling like they've got a good deal rather than trying to go for, like, five, six pounds for something that's not that long. Yeah, we've always had this sort of... There's always been discussions, so there's this amazing Slack group where there's a lot of VR developers, like, a lot, like a thousand of us all around the world. Right. Uh, and the, the price... The, the VRIlluminati.com, <laughs> <that? laughs> uh, But, like... Secretly yeah. price-fixing. Yeah, like, we always have these discussions um, about pricing, and it's such a personal thing. Um, like a lot of developers price their game high because they've worked it on for for a long time but then fail to show its value to the customer very well and it's like oh well I spent ages on it this is why it's this price it's like well you didn't show that value to the end person buying yeah I mean how long you spent on something is sort of immaterial isn't it to the actual how much people pay for it yeah um, but at the same time it's like you don't want to undervalue your time and like if you feel like your game is worth that much then you should put it on for that much you're ultimately the one in charge of your pricing well hopefully you are anyway um so uh and but then it's like you see that the sort of opposite discussions happen in the games in uh community on reddit and things where there has been very angry responses to have some price games that are just priced so high and to be fair i feel like there has been a couple of games that are probably priced way too high um i don't know why uh, i mean like there was one which i think was priced i think it was like martian vr was priced incredibly high to start with it was like 20 pounds and it was 20 minutes long right. um didn't feel 
quite right to me. <laughs> is it because people are going, well, the the hardware is quite expensive, so we know that like the people buying it there's have so got money? There's so many factors. There's that. There's probably because it was a, you know quite a large studio and I had a large budget or whatever, or it felt like it was a big IP. Um, I guess my... I mean, do you have on Steam with VR stuff, do you have the same sorts of things where people can get refunds if they've played it for less than a certain time and all of that sort of thing? Yeah, like, we, we haven't had that many refunds. We've got, like, the average number of refunds with Unseen Diplomacy, which is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the responses that we've had are basically, oh, I didn't see the fact it required this much space, despite all the warning signs and the warning signs that you get while you're installing it and the warning signs that you get when you try to buy it. But you know, <laughs> other than that, I didn't get to see the fact there was this warning signs, okay. <laughs> um, but no, our, our return rate's average apparently, which is good. Um, but uh, yeah, and for for VR, do you have to go through green light, or can you? Is it does the store work no in a different way? There's no green light anymore, is there? No, they've they've changed it. Well, they're going they're going to change it. So this, I mean, this is going to date really quickly. This bit of the conversation, <laughs> but basically, yeah. So you, I think yesterday or the day before, the news went around Twitter that Valve are going to get rid of green light and replace it with something where you just pay a deposit essentially to get on Steam mm-hmm. that you have to recoup. But no, the, I guess the big, the, the $64,000 question at the moment is how, how much is the deposit going to be? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've seen lots of places reporting this and missing the fact that Valve said it was recoupable. In, the, in yes. some way, it's not like how large amount of money that you're putting down and never getting back. There is some form that it gets given yeah. back to you. But uh... Well, you'd imagine that it's just that it's Valve's share of your... Yeah. They because they already take a chunk of when from every sale, don't they? So yeah, I can't remember it's... the exact percentage, but like. Yeah, I don't think you're supposed to say it actually. Yeah. Percentage. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess um, so. When we started, um, they gave us a token uh, because they were the ones that invited us to GDC and like here. Yeah. You guys can you can publish straight on Steam proper as it were. And yep. in fact, they're amazing because they even sent around our game to loads of press. And so we got in the sun and stuff. I don't read the sun, but apparently we were in there. Um, and like, I know that, I know up until at least a few months ago, I don't know when they changed, but I know that they've changed back to like what normal games were. Because there was for a time that if you were making a VR game, they would give you a token, as it were. Right. So you can actually just published straight light, light so um i think that's why a lot of people were like really trying to get onto steam like ah oh, if i make a vr game i can get a token and therefore i'm a publisher <laughs> right, and right. could skip the whole green light thing um but i think that's changed because i did see someone it's, it's complaining the other day <laughs> yeah i mean what where do you guys stand would you like to see like a high barrier like or would you like it to be completely open and democratic um so i feel like it's a multi-part thing here which is first of all i would want to make sure that i have confidence in valve's discovery systems mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of the problem has been like you know they don't want to have so many games up on steam because prob- like this problem has always been discovery um and to be honest that's only ever going to get worse anyway it depends how much worse it's going to be getting um because you know there's always new games coming on which means that your ch- the chances of your game coming up is always going to be slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. Um, just depends how fast new games go up. 
Mm. Um, yeah, because the number of new games is growing faster than yeah. the audience, right? Yeah. So there was a while where like the Steam audience was exploding, but now the Steam audience is leveling up, leveling out, but the number of developers is increasing. But then it's not like everyone is at the same standard. Yeah. Like if you, the number of developers is increasing, but most of the games are bad. Like it's not like we have five Super Meat Boys every day or whatever, pick whatever like indie game that you like. It's like they're really bad games. They're games that, you know, I don't want to pick on. (laughs) No, but like I follow, I follow um, a Twitter, several Twitter accounts that's like uh, now on Steam or today on Steam or whatever. And it just, it just posts like the trailer of everything that gets mm. released and like most of them are not like your owl boys and stuff that have been seven years in development there's things that look like the sorts of stuff that we did in the flash days and we spent two weeks on and put them on new grounds like not that there's anything wrong with that as a creative output but if you're actually trying to do it as a business like you don't want to you know if you're what am I trying to say? If you're, if you've got a band, right, you want to your band on the shelf next to like the Rolling Stones and mm-hmm. Pearl Jam. You don't want it on the shelf next to everyone else's like indie band, band that, yeah. indie band that they've tape recorded in their room, right? And I think one of the things you mentioned there is is quite important that um, places like Newsgrounds and Congregate have like used to be where a lot of that stuff was, yeah. and they've those have kind of just disappeared from the public conscious now like yeah no partly because because the decline of flash and partly because the rise of mobile and lots of other things but that used to be like a reputable place where that kind of smaller scale game could get attention and you could monetize it. You could get ads and you could get some feedback from it. And that's where the meatball. And that's where meatball came and a whole bunch of other like good indie games kind of got their start from. And the decline of that has kind of meant steam is where everyone's been pushed to. Uh, It's Mm. kind of unfortunate. And And that mixed with the fact that no longer people are using flash. They're now using unity, which means I can build standalone apps. Yeah, the rise of Unity and, and just the more accessibility of Unreal Engine has kind of changed that whole landscape. And I, I'm not necessarily sure I want to suggest like two tiers of Steam, like <laughs> Steam proper and Steam lo-fi or something, because that seems a, li- a little segregationist. But There definitely like needs to be a place for people who are learning game development and want to want the public yeah. to be able yeah. to get their stuff but then we've got like itch itch, itch. i keep pointing people to itch and it's like it should be the solution or like a steam version of itch or something and, and itch a gaming ground and that's yeah. that's important because steam kind of don't want this tier and congregate and that have gone down so itch should be really well positioned and they they're doing a lot of really interesting stuff with their versions of early access and um, I definitely think most people should be looking at that. Yeah, there needs to be more awareness of it. But coming back to Steam and all these games coming up, and basically now anyone with enough money can, at some point, I guess, you know, if it's a loan or an overdraft or whatever, I don't know, but can put stuff up. Um, I guess opening it up, if even if they made it free, like and or priced, is not really going to make a difference. I don't think. 
like people will find the money or if they really can't then they'll find different ways to, to launch their game if it does well then they've got the money to put it up um but i mean i mean i've heard like problems. some yeah i mean some people have said like oh this is just going to make it what's going to happen is like predatory uh publishers are going to come in and offer people yeah, really bad deals I can see just that. for that however much money you need i mean you already had that in early access as well like people saying oh we'll get you a game through early access and you can launch on our publisher account and stuff and people never see them yeah you see but isn't that isn't that also one of the problems that people think that all of the bad games on steam come from Greenlight when actually they come from pub people like unscrupulous publishers who have there's, there's all to... sorts of sources yeah. i think i mean like there's also big budget bad games as well to be honest and, and also but... like valve kind of like to pretend that to get on steam you have to go through green light but there is lots of other ways of getting i mm -hmm. mean other than the fact that i mean they originally tried to pretend that activision were gonna have to go through green lights obviously <laughs> activision don't have to go through green light so in some ways green light kind of gets the flack for lots of other things going on behind the scenes. Yeah, ultimately, I don't think it's going to solve anything. And it's what the system is supposed to be is that the good stuff will float to the top somehow. Um, but unfortunately in life, that's always a popularity contest and things that but then isn't isn't all of isn't the isn't that the whole point that it's a popularity contest like the most popular games are the ones that yeah but i'm on about like the, ones that you know people get um like all sorts of like um like small countries to basically go hey like buy our game or like giving it away for free at events or whatever or um or just have the ability to really get a lot of clicks through you know it's like twitter followers you can buy twitter followers you can buy likes on facebook you can but that's just making a number go up isn't it like it yeah like i mean i guess one of the problems with green light is it's much easier to get someone to click a button that says they would buy something yeah. than to actually buy it that's true like I, like I, I could get lots of people to click something that said they'll buy it because I've got lots yeah, of Twitter followers, but it doesn't actually mean that they'd buy it. Yeah, I think the other problem possibly that Steam has, and I'm not sure how to fix this, but um, like you said, it's it's popularity and having the popular things float to the top. But popularity is very one-dimensional and. Um, the terrible example, but Euro Truck Simulator is incredibly popular. But that is also a game I might never want to play because it's it's very dry and very simulating. But I'm sure there are people who absolutely love that Train game. Train Simulator. That's a really good Train fit. Simulator's big game. Train Simulator might be a better <laughs> example because I totally would play Euro Truck Simulator. <laughs> but this, this very linear kind of a game is like 80% popular or 90% popular means that everything gets funneled into the same kind of mm. thing. And if there was a way possibly for steam to either figure out or for me to indicate the kind of things that i like well that's what the discovery queue is supposed to be it's supposed to be but i'm not sure it does anything other than very simple genre matching mm. uh so yeah um but of course if you're talking about vr with the smaller market then like that would never bubbled up to the surface compared to a flat game because again it's like the amount of units the out there, there compared to the amount of units of like straight pcs that are able to play games mm. um, yeah it's a quite a small market isn't it vr like 
It's definitely a lot uh, smaller than everyone with a PC. Yeah. <laughs> Not everyone P- yeah. has a PC has a VR kit yet, unfortunately. But then is is everyone who ha- has a VR kit tro- buying lots of games? Uh, or not because the problem with everyone owning a PC is that like there's you know there's lo- there's millions of Steam users but most of them are just playing one or two games right they're mostly actually yeah. not buying indie games and there's like the the magic one million people or whoever it is in the world that actually buy indie games yeah I would love to see some data on like the attach rate for, for games for VR users but I'm not sure anybody's released anything I have like anecdotal things that some people, when they got like their five, just bought every game in the store, which about twenty. Those twenty time. at the time. <laughs> but that, that's still a lot more. <laughs> if you get a PS3, and the average attach rates for PS3 was like one and a half games out of the six, eight launch games that were available. Um, yeah, I'm not sure any how if you could probably do some interesting stuff with. Um, Steam Spy and kind of guess at it, maybe. Uh, that might be a weekend project. It'd be like a, you probably have to use VR to represent the data because there's so many dimensions on it. It's like you have to have interdimensional data play or something. Because um, you guys obviously have done lots and lots of like market research, competitor research, really? just research <laughs> in general. You know what I mean? You've played a lot of things, right? Yeah. What have you seen that you find interesting that other people have made? Ooh. Um, like what's made you go oh like I love what they've done there so I guess I was just looking at the like the mixed reality trailers are really pretty and I loved Mm. uh, like is it Fantastic Contraption uh, yeah there's quite a few yeah you can pretty much do it with a lot of titles and you can try to do it with all sorts but um, there's like some in engine stuff which Job Simulator are doing where they can actually like put lights onto people's faces like real people's faces, which you couldn't do before. So if there's an in-game light that's red, the body of the, the real the green person, screened player. the green screen. When you say the real person, you mean like the video, yeah, the video camera that's recording the person wearing who's wearing the headset. Yeah. So like the footage of that person clipped out would have a red light on their face, and it bounces off their face correctly. So that's uh, great for like streaming and things like that, right? Yeah, it's, it's 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 a lovely cool. setup they've got. They've spent it makes a lot it, of time. Yeah, it. it makes them look like that the real player is sitting yeah. within that virtual world on a on a trailer, yeah. which is really pretty. I think that the VR game that I think I've most uh, almost been envious of is uh, Playroom VR, which is a, a the PS uh, PS VR launch game, and right. it's it's largely a collection of mini games. But it yep. has so many ideas, and it just it throws them out so fast that just as you're you're kind of accustomed to getting acclimatized to one, it just throws something else at you, and it's uh, there's so much inventiveness and playfulness that game. It's frustrating because it's one of the concepts I came up with when I was at Sony. <laughs> it's like, oh, guys, we should do this. <laughs> but um, no, I think I think game wise, like actual game wise. Um, so um, there's a guy that's, uh, called Brian that uh, does climbery, climbing, climbing, and painterly, and he's done on a lot Steam. on Steam, and he's done a lot of mechanics which other games have actually picked up and got the karma for, as it were. Um, right. And I guess I, I, I'm still, 
I enjoy games that show me a new gameplay experience and stuff that he does often does give me a new gameplay experience, like different ways of locomoting, um, like um, getting like connecting the game up to Twitch and having the users that are talking to you in Twitch represent them, be represented within the VR world, and so you can mm-hmm. be interacting with them. Uh, he came up with this idea of um, the Twitch camera actually having a handheld camera that you can place within the world and record yourself doing stuff. So it's like a virtual camera recording real video out to Twitch. It, uh, it gets confusing. Yeah. We're going to need some new terminology. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's done some really cool stuff. And I don't think he's necessarily made a complete haul title yet with, like, level progressions and stuff. Like, what we would think of a very traditional game structure. Uh, but, like, his early access stuff has been really cool. Cool. And um, what are you guys working on, like, right now? Is, is Unseen Diplomacy, like, completely finished? Or is, you, is that something you still poke? So, uh, we're after, like, a few things. We're trying to find funding for Unseen Diplomacy because we want to, like, make big, big version, as it were, uh, full title, traditional mechanics. Progress, like, progress. more content yeah. turn it into a big proper game. Yeah. Um, um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. And then uh, we're still working on Smash It Plunder. Basically, right. <laughs> and what? Well, tell me about Splash It Plunder because you haven't really spoken about that. Uh, the idea of the game is that you run around the dungeon, uh, smashing place up, looking for treasure, uh, and it's got like a few other game modes. But uh, the core of it is a bit like Finders Keepers or Supermarket Sweep TV series. Right. Yeah, back in the nineties. Um, so you go into this lovely organised place and it ends up being a mess because of what yeah. you've done. Now we've got some some interesting kind of mini like multiplayer modes using the um the social screen um so like messing with a bit like how the wii u started that a little bit yeah oh so the social screen that's where you have like a a monitor or a tv that's showing something else that's different to the what the vr headset sees yeah exactly yeah um so it's sort of just experiment experimenting with that really and just seeing what all the possibilities are with trap controllers and things with it because uh, originally we started on the gear with it, uh, but really we sort of just took a step back and went, what is there? What can we do with, really, with this? And it's got like massively out of scope now. Because <laughs> like something with that, it, like that plays with the idea of like, it's very meta, right? Like you could have a game, for example, where one person is in VR seeing like a 3D world mm-hmm. and they could be fighting their friends who were seeing like a top-down 2D game or something mm-hmm. like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. it, wouldn't even, it wouldn't even need the same art. Like yeah. one person could be seeing like sprites and one person could be seeing th- proper 3D stuff or yeah. Yeah, there's, whatever. There's, there's so many things you can do, you can with, do that. with that. There's a lot. It's really, really cool. Like it's a cool, it's a cool toy as a designer to play around with uh, because I guess... Like suddenly you have to make this 4D game in some ways, like mm. two entirely sort of different worlds, um, which so, yeah. interact somehow. <laughs> um, from a technical <laughs> point of view, it's a performance nightmare because VR is always already bad trying to render two different eyes, and now we've got a third camera, so it gets expensive fast. Mm. That's why you just got to go with pixel art. <laughs> Yeah. For the social screen. Everything in four colours, why not? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, thanks so much for, for talking to me. We'll wrap it up there. Unless, is there anything else you guys want to plug or anything? Uh, still have the funding. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
no, like... I, Are you guys going out to GDC? Uh, no, I didn't really enjoy GDC too much. So I'm sort of giving it a mess this year. It's, and it's, it's a long way to go year. for... Uh... It's a long way to go. Uh, I don't really like the atmosphere. GDC is crazy. Like, GDC is one of those times when you realise that, like, half the people on your Twitter feed are completely broke and half of the other half have loads of money <laughs> because yeah, I can see that. half of them are like jetting out to San Francisco and the rest are like eat, still eating their noodles. We got free money from the government for doing it last year. It's worth looking into. UK, uh, UK, uh, UK, uh, what's it called? Oh God, UKTI, UK Trade and Investment. They give you free money to go to expos. Grant money. Yeah, cool. That covered part of the cost, which yeah. is nice. Um, I think we usually prefer more the, the UK ones, like uh, develop is, is much more, um, I guess there's much more of a, a sense of a community there maybe. Yeah, it's more yeah. a community, it's nice. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Great, well, uh, good luck with everything. Um, oh, I hope you. that you find your investment that you need for um, Unseen Diplomacy. Will it be Unseen Diplomacy 2? Don't know or yet. Just... <laughs> Don't know yet. <laughs> Some clever name. <laughs> like the unseeing. The mechanics are definitely there to do something, so we'll have a look. <laughs> cool. Good luck with that. Thanks for joining me. Cool, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.